I'm Kim, and welcome to Historic's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of April 2018. Join us this month as we get an education from two devoted parks interpreters. Luann Thompson shares her favorite things about the landscape and creatures found in Anza Borrego Desert State Park. And Andy Fitzpatrick introduces us to the Providence Mountain State Recreation Area, including the Route 66 roadside attraction turned state parks resource, the astonishing Mitchell Caverns. So stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skidrow, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Mark. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of April 2018. This month, we are interviewing interpreters from California State Parks. Our uh, our first interview will be with Andy Fitzpatrick. He's an interpreter at Providence Mountains State Recreation Area, and he will be introducing us to the glories and wonders of Mitchell Caverns. Our second interpreter will be Luann Thompson. She's an interpreter at Anza Borrego State Park, and she's going to be talking to us simply about her favorite things in that park, which is so big you could fit all the other state parks combined into Anza Borrego. So we'll we'll take it away. Kim, let's just jump in to the deep end. Kim, the Pishka Maven, tell us about the tip jar. I'm holding my hat out, people. I am, because as you can see, we've been awfully busy. This, our April episode, coming out at the end of April. But that's not a bad thing. That just means we've been working hard to get stories for you. And some of you like to support us with a little something in that digital tip jar. We're always so grateful when you do. And I can promise you, anything that you do donate will almost certainly be spent on... uh, Chili Rano burritos, which we enjoy on the road while going out to places like Mitchell Caverns. It's never obligatory, but it's always appreciated. We thank you for your support. Perfect. Okay, excellent. So, Kim, let's. we've got some closely watched trains. Let's get through these very quickly because I'm eager to get to the interviews. So, first one I'm just going to take because we don't have a lot to say. We're just super excited. We've just seen that the draft EIR to rehabilitate the lake at Hollenbeck Park has come out, and we're super excited. So this means in like, I think like 18 months, they're going to get started to work on rehabilitating the lake at Hollenbeck Park. Long overdue, uh, the park was a gift of Mrs. Hollenbeck and the Workman family. The park was privately developed by the Workmans and Hollenbecks for their real estate development in the area, immediately across from Mrs. Hollenbeck's manor, which became Hollenbeck Home the retirement home. So, super important. Boyle Heights is an incredibly important neighborhood. Can't wait for this lake to get the attention it long deserves and bring it back up to par with its with its sister, Echo Park. And yet, and yet, isn't it funny how no one ever talked about rehabilitating this really important lake? 
and the park until property values went through the roof and they decided to tear down the beautiful 6th Street Viaduct and build this wacky noodle that's going to be a gateway to the Arts District. It's kind of sad. I mean, you know, there's a limited amount of resources in city government to get things done. I think Boyle Heights deserves a lot more love and you shouldn't have to have higher property values before you get a little bit of care for your natural landscape. So, something to watch. But we are glad they're fixing up the lake. Yeah, don't don't get us wrong. We're we're super excited about it. this. Is going to be great. Okay, so Kim, let's just uh, barreling along. Mayor Garcetti has put his support behind a a a, a petition, which seems like it, it might have enough juice to get to the ballot in November. Do you want to tell us about this? Yeah, this is so much fun because uh, Sacramento just tried to impose its its real estate planning ideology on the entire state and got an enormous pushback to Scott Wiener's really kind of demented pro-development state bill. And now a lot of tenants' rights activists have organized to push forward a full repeal of Costa-Hawkins, which is the 1995 state law that makes it impossible for municipalities to um, extend rent control, even when they're suffering terrible housing shortages and rent crises like we are. Well, you know, it's, it's happening all over. California, really all over the nation, but Los Angeles is really hurting, and because when Costa Hawkins was imposed in 1995, it stopped the clock on what became a rent-stabilized property, anything built after October 1978, which includes, as we're discovering from some of the tenants in L.A. who are going on rent strikes because they live in slums, it includes some really run-down apartments at this point, Uh, you know, there's no rent control. So if this gets on the ballot, I think there's going to be a lot of public support. Everyone is feeling this rent crisis and seeing uh, members of their community being pushed out. It would be really a great benefit. And is it going to harm the small landlords? Probably not so much. It'll harm the big corporate landlords who are taking advantage of the ability to push up rent prices and use apartment houses as illegal hotels. We're for it. And it's kind of exciting. And we're glad to see people taking back some power. So stay tuned on that one. Great. Perfect. Okay. Quickly, moving along. Uh, the crossroads of the world development, which is this um, reconception of what Hollywood is uh, in, in its long struggle, which it's still very much in its infancy, to get to um, realization. Uh, there's been an important milestone for us on the preservation side of the table, They've agreed to incorporate the landmark Hollywood Reporter building into uh, the, 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 the campus. I guess that's what they call these things now, campuses. Yeah, so that's, that's very good news. It's really good news, and it, it, even though we're not sure what's going to happen to the adjacent structures, which is a, an interlocked entire block of 1930s era, completely untouched garden court apartments, which people don't really have a sense of how beautiful they are until you go inside, which happily the people who were trying to landmark them did and photographed and discovered that these um, apartments that were basically built for Hollywood's working class, the people who worked in the studio system, have never been altered. The kitchens, the bathrooms, the courtyards are all 1939 Hollywood Regency style. So charming. And that's 80 rent-controlled apartments, uh, potentially on the chopping block, but they too are now in consideration to be landmarked. The interesting thing that happened with the acceptance of the Hollywood Reporter Building as a landmark is that the entire 
uh, look of this Crossroads of the World mega project was altered. There are planned to reconfigure the street there and actually do a diagonal through what is the site of the Hollywood Reporter to create a new street leading up towards Hollywood Boulevard. That's off the table because you can't do that. Well, you can't do that if the Hollywood Reporter building is preserved. Um, And that means, you know, obviously they'd like to build on the site of these apartments, but if they're landmark too, maybe that will no longer be necessary, you know. I think that they can develop the land that they own without taking out the entire historic structure of Hollywood, but we'll see. The important thing that everyone comes back to is just how important Crossroads of the World is, which is to the east of this entire proposed mega-development. Crossroads, of course, is on the National Register. Um, It's been beautifully maintained, and we're really excited about the notion of it becoming more of a public-facing space again, because it was built as a shopping center. It's become recording studios and private offices, and it's been blocked off to the public for a lot of years. We were very privileged to be able to take people in on tours in the last few years, and we're looking forward to taking people in again, so we'll see what happens. Perfect. Okay, great. Let's stick to Hollywood and you promised me we were just going to call this one out. We don't have a lot of information, but we just, for the sake of, mm-hmm. uh, so this is, okay, go. All right. So, there was a proposal to build on the parking lot surrounding the Capitol Records Tower, Wilton Beckett's great circular high-rise, late 1950s, modern, magnificence. And uh, this project ended up in the courts, and it was halted because there's a very serious earthquake fault directly underneath, and building something much, 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 much taller than anything else in Hollywood on that site has the potential to kill huge numbers of people. Plus, the infrastructure can't really support something of that size. So... Now they're back, and they have new experts, and they say there's no earthquake fault. So we'll see what happens. Didn't do too well in the courts last time around. And what will happen to the famous echo chambers buried under the parking lots of the Capitol Records Tower? I don't know, but no one's really using echo much anymore. You can do that all with computers, right? It doesn't right. matter. Who it cares? It, it's, it, we're just we were we're just going to see. Okay, so the millennium the Millennium Project has been resurrected. No, no, it's not called oh. Millennium anymore because the Millennium Project in San Francisco is. Falling over. Right. So they changed their name. Okay. We'll keep you posted. Okay, so, um, Church of the Angels. Kim, Church of the Angels. So this is, um, here you go. Okay. That was super weird. You've got gremlins on the table, Richard. Yeah. You're going to turn that gremlin off, aren't you? Yeah. All right. Church of the Angels. This was just sad. You know, one of the most beautiful churches in Southern California, it's it's way up there in that weird part of Northeast LA that's kind of Highland Park, kind of Pasadena, kind of South Pasadena, Gravanza. I don't know. I don't even know what city it is in. And apparently there was some confusion about which um, fire department was going to respond when some maniac went inside and set things on fire, set hymnals on fire, destroyed um, the historic uh, angel statue in in the garden lawn, and uh, this was part of a series, apparently. There was someone going around to a lot of churches and vandalizing them with, with fire and paint, and happily this person did get arrested the suspect shortly after this incident. The Church of the Angels was not lost, but 
I've watched with great interest on social media as um, members of the parish showed up and cleaned up and took some pictures and shared them to say that it wasn't in bad shape because it's such a beautiful late 19th century structure with just wonderful tile and stained glass and, well... I do have to wonder if my friends having their Krampus play maybe stirred up a little bit of dark energy there. Probably not, though. That was some time ago. We're, we're going to keep you posted. It's a beautiful, it's Ernst Kochset. Yeah. So it's just um, very rare Ernst, uh, Ernst Kochset. Ernst Kochset is a very important Northern California architect. So this is one Arts of... and crafts? Yeah. This is, gra- this is 1896. No, it's earlier than that. 1880s. 1880s. Oh, that's right. This the right late 1880s. It's a beautiful church. We're going to keep you posted. Okay, Kim. I want to let you talk about this one, but I want to introduce it the way I want to introduce it so everyone understands. So we're about to tell you about the owner of a large piece of hotly contested property on Wilshire, just east of Western Liberty Park, the Beneficial Life Plaza. Uh, The owner was at a, a couple about six weeks ago. Was at a meeting in City Hall with Herb Wesson, that's Herb Wesson's district, and the city attorney and some other stakeholders about the fate of Liberty Park, the green space integral to the development. And he threatened to shoot everyone with an automatic weapon. Yeah, that's what happened. Uh, Jameson Services, it's uh, Dr. David Lee's development company. He owns a lot of Koreatown. And one of the properties that he owns is the Beneficial Life Plaza. The family that put up Beneficial Life in the in the late 1960s chose to set their um, high-rise back from Wilshire and create a really beautiful, modernistically landscaped... Very uh, important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. A, a landmark in, in modernist landscaping. Yeah, so at the front of the lawn, there's a wonderful little grove of pine trees, and then you walk on some um, steps and some pathways, and it leads you to a model of the Liberty Bell, hence Liberty Park. And um, it's been used essentially as a recognized public green space. It's not legally a city park. It's privately maintained, but it has served as a community beacon for decades. And that was the intention of the beneficial life people. And when it was sold, the property was, I'm quite certain, priced accordingly with the zoning that that is green space. Uh, but you know how it is when you're a multi-billionaire. You're just, you, you look at everything and all you see is the potential to get higher rents. So, and, and less commute time. And less commute time. So the notion that you know people in the community could look at this thing and research its history and submit a nomination to landmark it and recognize it as a landscape to be preserved under the city's historic cultural monuments ordinance, um, apparently so incensed Dr. Lee uh, that he, he did actually make a death threat in City Hall. Now, I just think it's interesting that people like Zumadog and his friends show up at city council meetings, hasn't done that in a while, but occasionally say things that are quite provocative but are clearly free speech and intended to needle city council members. And sometimes they're hustled out and um, forcibly removed and, you know, sometimes even arrested. But in this case, this very, very powerful property owner was in a meeting with representatives of the city council and community members who were seeking landmarking of what they consider a really important space made an absolutely unambiguous death threat. And he didn't say, like, I'm going to kill you right now. He said, you can come onto that lawn, but I could shoot you with my AR-15. 
And potentially, as the owner of the property, he could go up on the roof and do that. This was very shortly after the shooting in Las Vegas. And the result was, um, not well, enough. not much. I mean, it doesn't seem like charges are going to be filed. But interestingly enough, there was a result, which is going to make Dr. Lee very unhappy. And he might still sh do something bad. I don't know. But the result is, whatever they were planning to do at the end of this meeting, um, at the end... Her Wesson supported the landmarking, and that's what's happened. It's now going to be a protected landmark. Now, as to whether human beings can go and enjoy it, at the moment, there are security guards telling you not to. Okay, we're going to... We're just The Wilshire tour is coming up, so... The Wilshire tour is coming up. Okay, so let's um, stay on the topic of billionaires. I love billionaires. Okay, Kim, uh, L.A. Times. <laughs> LA Times might get sold. I don't know. The nitwits from Tronk seem to be, if not out of the picture, soon to be out of the picture. And uh, up in the gate, possibly to become the new owner. Very exciting. Local owner with an interest in journalism, with an interest in opening up his pocketbook and supporting the staff and growing it. And uh, there's only one problem. Patrick Sunshine... Sun Shang does not want to stay in the historic Los Angeles Times headquarters in downtown Los Angeles, which Tribune Tronk did sell off to a Canadian development company a few years ago, Oni Group. Uh, he owns a bunch of stuff out near his place on the west side, so he had a meeting at the Times. He paid to rent the auditorium and, and address his potential new staff for the first time while we're waiting for the deal to come through. And he let them know that he loves them, and he supports them, and he believes in them, and they're all going to move to El Segundo. So we actually had an appointment in El Segundo the very next day. There are no accidents. How often do we have appointments in El Segundo? So out we went. Once a year. Once a year. Yeah, it was a tax thing. So um, <laughs> it's just perfect. So we were out there anyway. It took a really long time to get there, even, even on... Um, the special carpool lanes with the transponder. And there we were at the new Los Angeles Times headquarters, and it's the most depressing business park under an overpass that you've ever seen. And we walked inside and took a photo of the lobby, which lacks the elegance of the global lobby. And uh, we'll include a link, and you can see, you can follow along. It's the only tweet storm I've ever done to date, but I felt like it was sort of a Stations of the Cross, so I... I, I I narrated with tweets and photos our, our visit to the potential new Los Angeles Times headquarters. Patrick, Patrick, please keep the building downtown. You're the richest man in Los Angeles? Buy it from Oni Group. Okay, Kim, we have to stop because um, this, is, this is a story that is unfolding. Oh. And, and we don't want to waste energy. We're just going to see. There's, there's a lot to come, okay? Everyone hold their breath on this. Okay, so we only have a couple more closely watched trains. Um, the next one is really interesting. It's the uh, adaptive, it's the adaptation of motor court hotels yeah. for the home, for, for homeless housing, emergency housing, how the, for transitional housing. Yeah, it's great. I, I'm so excited to see the city of Los Angeles getting behind this great idea of um, going to people who own older motels and saying we want to basically four-wall this place and turn it into a place for people to transition out of homelessness with support, which means that these hotels, motels, um, get a guaranteed income stream. They can keep them up. 
There'll be people on site who can help the people there experiencing homelessness with um, mental health and jobs and all the things that they need. And it also helps preserve an increasingly endangered form of vernacular architecture here in the city. And I just think it's really cool that Michael Weinstein's AIDS Healthcare um, nonprofit got into this notion recently. Um, like last year, they started buying hotels specifically for this purpose. And I, I think it's a terrific idea, and it's nice to see the city following the lead of a, a pretty innovative nonprofit. Perfect. Okay. One last one left, and I'm going to let you do it because you were just there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, city of Pasadena has some plans for the Colorado Street Bridge, a.k.a. Suicide Bridge. Yeah. Well, you know... The Colorado Street Bridge has been there since 1912. It's on the National Register. It is exquisitely beautiful. And since the Depression, there have been attempts to stop people jumping off of it, but it's never really worked. There have been many ugly um, fence solutions over the years, and at the moment, it has one of the ugliest fence solutions (laughs) I've ever seen. They just created these large oversized chain-link sections and bolted them to the front of these really lovely, lyrical, little uh, half-moon-shaped benches which line the bridge. So now, um, for instance, when we do our Pasadena Confidential Tour and I talk about the history of the place, I can't take people out on the bridge because there's nowhere for people to gather. The, the one place where a group of people could actually cluster together is blocked off by chain-link. And uh, it, I'm sorry to say, it's not helping. People are still jumping off the bridge. So they've had some city meetings. In fact, a, a friend of mine saw someone while biking, which is horrible. Um, they've had some city meetings, and they're talking about what to do. They haven't come up with an actual design guideline yet, but they do know that they want it to be a tall, vertical barrier. So it's probably going to cost $400,000 or more. Um, there'll be more meetings and more discussion about it. At the end of the day, I'm not sure what they can do that would help as much as just maybe paying someone to be on the bridge at all times and no, talk they to should, jumpers. They should, they, should, they should destroy the bridge. They should, they should just destroy, remove, it. remove the bridge, and that will remove the threat. I guess they could encase the whole thing in loose sight. No. no. So they just have to, they just have to if, if no one lives in Pasadena, this isn't a problem anymore. There's oh. no liability. Well, no. See, Richard, it's very important that you talk about people living in, in Pasadena because this wasn't anything on anyone's radar um, until they decided to develop housing directly in the path of where people jump. Right. So, so what you mean is in the Arroyo underneath, there's now a housing development, right. and, and people are actually concerned that people are going to jump off the bridge and land on them, which is a valid concern, and you would think that's something that would have come up at a planning commission meeting, like, 20 years ago. Um, we're moving on, Kim. Okay, we're moving on. Right. We're done with closely watched trains. Right. I want to thank you for your time and attention on this. As always, this is a great way to keep everyone up to speed, and a record of our lives as we go through for future reference. So, Kim, we have one upcoming event. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is Sunday, May 20th. It is the uh, Crime Lab, the Lava Forensic Science Seminar Crime Lab on the Grim Sleeper. It's not okay. the only thing coming up, but yeah. Of, of events that are not bus tours? Oh, that's true. Sam right. Yeah. I know, I know. We, we got a Tom Waits tour? That's Kim, special. that's later. Okay, right. so so we have this event Sunday, May 20th, 
Marguerite Rizzo is a deputy district attorney. She was one of the prosecutors on this case. She's going to be leading the discussion. Uh, we're going to have um, David Kim, who is an LAPD DNA expert. Uh, this is a cold case, so David's expertise is in is in cold cases. So how you 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 pick up a case that's 20, 30 years old and go back and look at the DNA and get to it. It's a super interesting case. Also, uh, one of the presenters will be Christine Pelisek. She's a journalist. She wrote a book about the Grim Sleeper case. It came out not too recent, not too long ago. It just, just came out. Just in came out. Yeah, it came out. Just like yeah. Um, so she's going to be there selling her book, signing her book. Um, she's great. Everyone involved is great. It's I'm super excited. So. Well, just to add, I mean, it, it couldn't be more timely because this week has seen the arrest through the use of a, a very innovative slash questionable use of familial DNA um, of this uh, character D'Angelo up in Northern California, who's the suspect in what's come to be known as the Golden State Killer case or the Eurons case, East Area Rapist slash original Night Stalker. And... Um, so I think people may have questions about the way that DNA is being used to uh, make this arrest very, very different to the way that it was used to make the Grim Sleeper arrest. But the Grim Sleeper arrest, when it happened, was pretty controversial, too. And in fact, the governor made a statement about it because they were using DNA of close relatives in the criminal justice system to locate an unknown serial killer. And that's how they were able to narrow down uh, who was killing women years earlier down in South Los Angeles. So just a really interesting time, and I'm excited to learn more about the way that you can take someone's DNA profile and mix it up with everyone they're related to and learn so much about terrible people. All right, good. Okay, so we're um, in the home stretch here to get to the interviews, Kim. So let's see. Um, we just have the introductions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so good. Good job. Okay, so... We are going to segue into our interviews. I am interviewing Andy at Providence Mountains first, so I'm going to introduce him second. So I am now going to introduce Luann Thompson, interpreter at Anza Borrego State Park. She's the uh, she's she's specifically her, her her one of her specific jobs is for ports, which is um, for teachers and students. It's their their focus on student groups coming to the park. Okay, Luann is amazing. I just love she's she's the best. She's just the best. So um, we're going to talk to her about... Nailed it. What is this weird gremlin on your desk? My phone is just talking. Okay, it's okay. okay. Luann, I have a lot of robots. So Luann is just going to talk to us about amazing things to do in Anza Brega State Park, which is a really good thing. So this, this interview with Luann comes out of a deep-seated need. I felt I needed to offer our listeners, which is an attempt to make sense of the vastness of Anza Borrego State Park. It's a really big space. There's an incredible amount to do. And I just wanted to sit down with her and have her, first of all, tell everyone what book to buy and, and where you can go and how you can sort of break your visit down into different tiers of complication and involvement. So, so that's why I did this interview. And I just listened to it again before last night to make sure there were no just, weird things. right you always right you, you just make Why sure everything yeah, yeah 
So I was just listening to it last night for, to clear it for for ready into the podcast, and it's great. So I look. So I hope everyone enjoys it. I've, I've really done this. I hope for everyone can get out of their house, get out of their apartments, get out of their lives. Go meet a bighorn sheep. Go get off the grid, the the internet grid, and and get out into that beautiful desert out there and and make it happen. And so she's so she's she's going to be our second interview and our first interview is going to be with Andy Fitzpatrick. Andy Fitzpatrick is an interpreter at Providence Mountain State Recreation Area. Providence Mountain State Recreation Area is smack dab in the middle of the Mojave Desert Preserve and Providence Mountain State Recreation Area is home to Mitchell Caverns. Um, he's going to spend almost the entirety of our 20-minute interview talking about Mitchell Caverns. So I, uh, well, I guess, Kim, I'll let you just say one thing about Mitchell Caverns and, and, and Ranger Andy. Oh, yeah, I have one thing to say about Mitchell Caverns and Ra- Ranger Andy. You, you just win, Richard. I mean, anytime I'm feeling <laughs> a little cranky... <laughs> Which happens sometimes, you know. You work me really hard at this life of the preservationist historian carrying the soul and the weight of Los Angeles on my back. And then you're like, hey, do you want to go to the only show cave in Southern California, which was a Route 66 attraction run by a completely daffy family who signed it over to the state and it's been closed for years and vandalized and no one's been in, but now they fixed it up. And how about a private tour when no one's there, just with Ranger Andy and his family? And, and he'll bring a flashlight and we'll go look for microorganisms in the cave. Yeah. That works really well to make me feel so good about our lives. So thank you. Okay. So, so the... Again, this whole episode. So Anza Borrega State Park, where Luann is an interpreter, that is in the south. That's near San Diego. Uh, Providence Mountain is in the middle of the Mojave Preserve, which is in this, just, just off of Interstate 15, between Interstate 15 and 40. So these are faraway places, okay? And we talk about this at length in the interviews about, you know, it's not like you're just going to get out there in your pajamas and stop at the Starbucks and sort of come up to speed. These are like, these are non-trivial trips, but I really, this is my best shot for the summer for people getting out of their ruts. So let's take it away with my interview with Andy Fitzpatrick. Andy, Andy, I'm here with you. We're in the Eastern Mojave Desert. And I want you to properly introduce yourself and tell us exactly where we are. I'm Andy Fitzpatrick. I'm the state park interpreter up here at Providence Mountains State Recreation Area, the home of Mitchell Caverns. We are a state park inside the Mojave National Preserve um, in the eastern Mojave Desert of California. Perfect. Okay. So now we're situated. Kim and I are so happy to be here. Um, Just so everyone listening who's in Los Angeles... Three hours out the door, and then we left at six in the morning. So this is this is not a this is not a lunch. This is you're not coming to come out here for lunch if you're from Los Angeles, unless you're flying. But we'll get into that. Um, so Andy, we're out here to talk about the caves, okay? And I want you the caverns, and I want you to tell us what these caverns are. And you've you've just reopened, so let's just let's just get to the here and now with the caverns and your job for the public. The big draw up here um, is Mitchell Caverns, 
which are natural limestone caves, two separate natural caves that were joined together by a man-made tunnel in the 1960s. The, the Park Service put that tunnel in, just, just to, yeah. Yeah, California State Parks put the tunnel in, and it connects two really impressive natural caves, which are situated in the Providence Mountains um, at 4,300 feet, 1,000 feet at least above the valley floor. It's a very dramatic uh, cave entrance, which is not all that common with many caves. A lot of times entrances to caves are hidden away or hard to find. This is not one of those caves. It's a very obvious entrance. Right. And so just to get to the, to the here and now, which is why people are listening, I know that we were just in the office and, and I heard Julio say that the next, the first opening for reservations is May. And <laughs> it's the first week of February. Um, that said, that you already have a four-month waiting list. Tell people what one, they can expect if they come out here, and two, what they need to do to get out here and get a tour of these caverns. Um, it's a very remote park. I would expect to have intermittent cell phone service. Um, we're kind of off the grid up here. Make sure you bring food and water and have enough gas to get out of here. Um, I would expect to see some of the most beautiful, pristine, and lush corner of the Mojave Desert. Uh, it's really very astounding, and we're at the foot of the 7,000-foot-tall um, uh, Edgar Peak of Providence Mountains. To get out here and get into the caves, reservations are highly recommended. You can get in as a walk-in. There are, surprisingly, people who don't show for reservations, so you never know if there will be a spot open by someone who didn't show. But it's not a guarantee if you come on up here. And we understand it's a long way to travel without a guarantee to get in the caves. But I think your listeners would be surprised by how many people get in on cave tours as walk-ins. Okay, good, good. So we'll, we'll come back to that at the very end. But I just wanted to get that out of the way so people can process that. Okay, so so these, these, this ca- these two caverns, um, at least the larger of the two we were in, these are, these are thought to be maybe 50 million years, maybe. These could be really, really old caverns. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on the ancient past. I want to sort of jump in the middle, maybe, and talk about um, the couple, the Mitchells. So let's just jump in the middle for human lifespan sure. <laughs> with these these caverns. And just, it's, it's 1930, 1931, and the Mitchells have come out from East Texas. They have nothing. The clothes on their back, basically, what happens? Yeah, they had moved to Los Angeles... Uh, raised three daughters, and then lost everything in the Great Depression. Hardware store, um, home, they pulled up stakes, and they headed out to some silver mining claims they had here in the Mojave Desert and also near Kingman, Arizona. They end up here about 1933. They're living in tents for a while, eating jackrabbits, um, really doing a pioneer experience in one of the last eras that you could do that kind of experience. No electricity, very little water, uh, wood-burning stoves, you know, food is 25 miles away on Route 66. That's where all your supplies have to come in on. Um, And they end up operating a, really what is a Route 66 roadside attraction. Right. What they're doing is they're bringing people up here, pulling a couple people a day. Even during the Great Depression, there's a lot of traffic on Route 66. And the thought was, you know, we can get a couple people up here every day, give them a tour of the caves, 
feed them a meal. Maybe they spend the night in one of our outbuildings, and we have a full-fledged business. We got cash money on the table. Yeah. And that was a big deal yeah. during the Great Depression. There was really no credit back then and no social safety net. So if you're not working, you're not eating. Um, and they operated the resort for about 20 years. Thousands and thousands of people came through here. Jack spent a lot of time uh, promoting the caves, traveling around the country. He wrote for Desert Magazine, um, some newspaper articles. Definitely was a well-known spot on Route 66. Perfect. And just because we have a lot to talk about, I just sort of want to jump, jump forward. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt and P.T. Barnum. This is this is a, a this is a phrase you threw out several times in your wonderful introduction at the at the mouth of the cave. Yeah, that's Jack Mitchell's personality, and I have run this by his granddaughters, um, and they agreed that part of Jack's personality reminds you of part P.T. Barnum, part Teddy Roosevelt. The Teddy Roosevelt part is Jack's boundless energy and enthusiasm. He really loved the place. He was a natural study. He's a quick learner. A jack of all trades, pun intended, <laughs> right? I mean, he really was able to do a lot and uh, explored the hills, mined for silver here, gave tours, built buildings, walls, roads, water systems. I mean, you name it, he was doing it. That's part of his personality. The other part is the P.T. Barnum, the showman. Uh, P.T. Barnum invented show business in America with his circus and his museums in New York City. Um, P.T. Barnum didn't mind stretching the truth for a good story. Um, and that was part of Jack's personality as well. He liked to give people a good story. It's also maybe a old Western frontier tradition of, you know, telling tall tales to see if you can fool the rubes. You know, the city folk come out and tell them a whopper and see if they buy it. Uh, that was definitely part of Jack's personality. He, um, other visitors who've come from Texas said, big part of the Texas personality is that fish story. Every time you tell the story, the fish is a little bit bigger, the yeah. battle's a little more epic. Yeah. And Jack definitely had that. And it really helped for a business like this because the word of mouth, when you have such a guy like Jack, who's so entertaining and larger than life, it makes it a real pleasure for people spending their hard-earned money in lean years of the Great Depression to come up here and drop what was a pretty princely sum um, to come and visit what is really an amazing natural wonder um, with a guide who is uh, a very colorful, interesting guy. Just just to give people some sense of this, this is <laughs> when Jack ran things. There was no small threat to life and limb. I mean, there's now a beautiful road, and everything is paved in the cave now, and you have illumination. But um, for there, uh, for was a dollar to, to uh, about. I think roughly a dollar or so, for, at least in the early days. Um, yeah, it was a, it's a hard place. I mean, they were off the grid. They were doing pioneer-style living. There's a lot of rattlesnakes. <laughs> we are on a mountainside, so the rocks, um, I mean, it's, it's a struggle. There's everything, even the plants here have teeth. By that, I mean they have needles and spines. Everything's got a barb, um, which is pretty common in the desert. Uh, but, yeah, it was, a, it was a rough and tumble place, and Jack's, the trails... Jack Mitchell and family took people on would be like goat trails today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're pretty really, rough. It's really impressive. Um, I want to, okay, here we go. We're just going to throw another phrase out. Um, pseudoscorpions, scat, and sloths. 
Those are those are three words I wrote down from from our great tour with you today. Yeah, those are three of the things we may see in the cave. You'll definitely see a lot of scat, and that's how scientists say poop. poop. And, right? and, and everyone loves poop. Everyone can really kind of group of 30 disparate people that have never met each other before, start talking about scat, and everyone's just yeah. on the same page. It definitely cuts through any kind of demographic <laughs> boundaries. Um, desert scat is pretty interesting. It's also one of the few ways to know what animals are out here. There is a lot of wildlife in the desert. It's generally hiding in plain sight or underground when it's too hot. A lot of it's nocturnal. But if you know the scat and you know the tracks, you can kind of know what's going on. And the cave itself is very much alive. Uh, I mean that in a biological sense. Uh, it's full of animals. Um, the scats can be from bats. Townsend's big-eared bats are one of the more interesting and charismatic species we have here. Um, also wood rats. Uh, various rodents, ringtails, skunks. We've seen a roadrunner in there. Birds, snakes, chuckwall lizards. A lot of animals come into the cave. They leave a mess behind. But that can be very educational and informational as well. Uh, one of the older animals that's gone is the sloth. And the cave, the final room of the cave, yielded a Shasta ground sloth humerus. That's an upper limb bone. Very big. Um, about 30,000 years old, um, a very interesting animal in its own right, and one often found in desert caves. Really, it's one of my favorite topics on the cave tour. I could go on at oh, length. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're such a fascinating creature, and they're... Um, and pretty stinky, they were. Yeah, I imagine it would be an interesting animal. Um, big, it was 9 feet long, roughly 500 pounds, herbivores prehensile tongue like a giraffe that can grab things um it would have been a treat to have seen one and if they were still around i know there's some plants in the desert that would be happier right namely right. our our joshua trees now we don't have any joshua trees really here at this park but just north of us in the mojave preserve is the yeah. biggest joshua yeah. tree forest in the world yeah. and joshua trees in general are in trouble in 2018 they're declining uh, to use a biological term, part of that is related to the fact that their fruits are rather large and had really seemed to have been designed evolutionary-wise to be eaten by the ground sloths. And now with the shafts of ground sloth gone and nothing to disperse Joshua tree seeds, they're in a pickle. Right, and just so everyone's sort of up to speed, when you say gone, they're of course extinct, but they've been extinct for many thousands of years. Many it's not like It's not like... At the turn of the 19th century, there was this... <laughs> there was a Shasta ground sloth fur trade. No, I'm kidding. Um, Shasta ground sloth, they're an ice age animal, so yeah. most people would classify them. Uh, and they went extinct 10,000 years ago, maybe less. They may have made it a bit longer than the mammoths and right. the saber tooth. But they did go in that great mass extinction. Right, and so that's the, one of the last sort of points I wanted to bring up, is I wanted you to talk about, and this is a great... You talked about the archipelago of the Mojave Desert, these archipelagos, plural, singular, but these islands in the middle of this desert and the ecologies that exist on these islands, of which the sloth was, was one as long as it was around. Yeah, the, the high country that comes through this park, the Providence Mountains into the mid-hills and then the New York mountain range, really function as sky islands. And that includes the 
the high peaks of the Providence Mountain Range, which were actually within the state park boundary, which top out at 7,000 feet or just above, they have plant communities, species that can't be found on lower elevations. They just can't survive the more arid conditions down low. And so you get some really interesting adaptations on these sky islands. Animals and plants get stuck up here. Uh, to survive, they have to change, and they can no longer exchange DNA with other similar plants that are now found far, far away. Uh, so you get some interesting evolution. It's not unlike what happens on places like the Galapagos Islands, Hawaii, New Zealand, where plants or animals get stuck there, so to speak, and as the generations go by, thousands and thousands and thousands of generations, you get some major biological change. And that's, that happens here. We have Gila monsters, for instance, that are in this mountain range. It's a very rare thing in California, much more common in Arizona. Um, people should not pet the Gila monster <laughs> if they see them. If you see one, it's like winning the lottery, but I would not touch so the they, they should call, call you on your cell phone, but don't pet them while they're waiting for you. Definitely let a national park or state park ranger know if you saw a Gila monster up here. They're very, very rare. Um, fascinating creatures, and they are indicative of the kind of weird, isolated community. Maybe weird's not the way to, the, the term to use, but you have some really isolated communities here, and you get some very interesting uh, biology. Perfect. And so this leads quite naturally back into the caverns and the endemics, I think is what you call it. Exactly. Yeah, so let's, let's go underground back into about 50, 60 feet, back into the main cavern, and, and what do we find there? That is of this 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 focus this Galapagos like isolation after thousands of generations. Yeah, you know the the same kind of isolation that produces cool adaptations and evolution on the surface is even more dramatic underground, because the ecosystem of the cave is very strange. There's of course no sun, which means <laughs> no plants. Right. <laughs> so all the food sources really have to come in from the outside. Uh, in our cave, in Mitchell Caverns, it comes in in the form of scat. Bats, rodents, and the other animals I named, when the, they leave behind their droppings, you have a ready-made food source. And some time ago, who only knows when, probably, probably hundreds of thousands of years ago, some Nyptus beetles, which is a, uh, a genus of beetle that's found on the surface, all over the place, uh, they came into the cave, they started eating the scat, and as they were eating... This, as they slowly changed to live in the cave, they became so specialized that they can no longer survive outside of the cave. And they're not alone. There's a Nyptus beetle species, about an eighth of an inch long, uh, that lives in the cave. Doesn't live anywhere else in the world but our caves. <laughs> and then, of course, there's a pseudoscorpion or a false scorpion that also lives in there. Uh, they look like a tick with crab pincers and are about yeah. the same size. And they're actually part of the arachnid or spider family. Perfect. Okay, so we, we, need, we need to wrap this up. So I want to, um, the last thing we'll do is sort of reiterate people coming out here, what they can expect, the fact that there's like a mile and a half hike to get, we'll, yeah. we'll get to all of that at the, the very end, just that's the last thing people hear. But um, I want you to look ahead. This park has been closed for almost seven years, and you just reopened a couple weeks ago. Couple, three, three, oh, sorry, three months ago, right? Opened, so it's Feb, beginning of February 2018. You opened in November of 2017. That's right. Um, I want you to look ahead. I don't expect you to have answers. Obviously, the, the California State Park Service is 
has some ideas and is moving forward towards a you know a, a long term goal for the stewardship of the stewardship of this resource but but what are so I guess I just want you to talk about some of the challenges and they are basically resources protecting the resources versus the fact that this is a state park and people want to come and go into this cavern and and will drive three hours on the hopes that someone else woke up and didn't feel good and didn't want to leave the house at six o'clock in the morning to get here for their 10 o'clock door. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, the biggest factor out here is how remote the park is. And that's both a challenge and an opportunity. Um, the park had closed for a variety of reasons. It's been closed for a while. Um, there's a lot of improvements that were done while closed. Uh, including new well, new water tank and chlorination system, new generators, new lights in the cave, which I know visitors are going to love. LEDs, very crisp, very energy efficient. Um, we redid the housing for staff. We redid the visitor center, which was actually the old Mitchell home. Uh, new septic tank, which we all thought was pretty important. <laughs> um, new shop, new dorms. I know I'm forgetting some things. Oh, new new bridge uh, on the cave trail. And right now, you might even hear them in the background, we have the California Conservation Corps currently upgrading that trail, really doing an amazing job. Um, if you come up here on a tour in the next couple months, you will not only get a tour of Mitchell Caverns, but you will get the latest and greatest trail building techniques and technology yeah. on display from the California Conservation Corps and the State Parks Trails uh, team. Perfect. And so just... So just just to look ahead, so Ten it, it's years, yeah, yeah. well okay. I don't mean to. No, I get what no, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean so like we talked about this. So so yes. So uh, let let's start with a scenario. So given that you okay, let's start with this. So just tell us the wear and tear on the species that live in the cave, on what will be a regularly scheduled week of visits. And looking forward over the next 10 years, how you're going to mitigate that, that impact. Because that's, that's a non-trivial impact on the resources in the cave. Yeah, you know, it's always a, a balance. We want to preserve and keep natural places pristine and beautiful. And we also want people to have access to them. I mean, people will, if you don't have access to something, if you don't know about it, why would you ever care about it? So we found a pretty good balance here. We do two tours a day. Um, the tours are roughly two hour long, probably an hour of that is actually underground. So the animals that call the cave home, and there are a lot of animals that live in the cave or use the cave, they have a lot of opportunity to not be bothered by people. Um, particularly, you know, since a lot of our animals in the desert are nocturnal, doing daytime tours, uh, definitely mitigates their use of the cave. Right. You, you, you have bat doors. In, in the doors that lock the cave, I noticed you, you have yeah, bad doors. Yeah, we have, everything's kind of gated, um, like you do with a lot of caves in the world, and it's enough space for animals to get in, the animals that use the cave. The sloth might have had a problem if he was still <laughs> around, but bats, foxes, skunks, ringtails. The sloth has the key, right? <laughs> the sloth has the key. He might have the key. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, gosh, we kind of wish they you were like, You around. like that. You're going you're gonna to add that to the tour. <laughs> You, want to get, you know, that sloth, if you could be a volunteer up here, or even paid staff, we might might have an easier time of it, and he could interpret his own story, give himself some voice. 
So, <laughs> so I'm sorry. So, so for looking ahead the next 10, 15, 20 years, what, what do you want to see for, for really balancing the need to show people this wonderful natural resource and the impact that having 200 people a day come here, which is just, it's, it's, it's access is an issue. Yeah. Um, tours are limited and it has a couple of advantages for the animals for one. And when people come up here for a tour, it doesn't feel like you're going through a mill. It's a real special experience. It feels like you're part of a private club. Um, that's actually, I shouldn't say private. It's open to the public. <laughs> but there's only a certain amount of tables at the club, right. and you get to get in, and it's a really cool, intimate experience. Maybe that's the word to yeah. highlight. When you go through this cave, you're right there in the middle of it. Um, the formations are feet from you. We often see bats. We often see the weird um, endemic insects and arachnids <laughs> that live in there. They're very small, but we've gotten pretty good at sighting them, and Things are in sync when it comes to balancing yeah. the natural resources with the human interest of the caves. And they're very interesting. I mean, I think anybody who's listening, if you come up, I don't think we've ever had a disappointed visitor since the park's been reopened. It's a really spectacular place. I know I'm biased, but I California State Parks has 200 amazing places to visit. I think this is the coolest. I, this I is my favorite. I agree with you totally. Um, so let's just wrap this up. So I want you first to tell us how people can get a reservation, or if they want to chance it, they can come out and just see if there's a, a cancellation. So tell us how you make a reservation to get out here. To get reservations, to get on a reservation for Mitchell Caverns, you can call between eight and five on Mondays to make a reservation. We usually take reservations about two, three months out. Right now we are taking reservations for May. I have to warn anybody who's calling that do go quick. Yeah. It's yeah. a very popular spot and of course as I mentioned it's a limited amount of people we can get in there while still respecting the integrity of the cave. It is a very personal experience when you get in. Now right now we are taking reservations by phone on Mondays between eight and five, but soon we will be on the statewide uh, awesome. Reserve California system. Perfect. I believe it's ReserveCalifornia.com. Yeah. Yeah. We should be on there in a couple months, probably by summer or early autumn. I, I will um, I will update the links on this podcast page, so we'll let that enough said. So if you're listening to this podcast and it's later in 2018 or beyond, I'll have a link for that. Cool. I want you, and, 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 I, and I want to wrap this up, I just want you to tell people that this is a non-trivial endeavor to get out here. So just, this is, like, eat breakfast, stay <laughs> like, don't, like, like, to just, it, you're not, like, going to the beach and sitting at a cafe and being waited on, right? Yeah, it's, no. it's, you're not just falling out of the car in your pajamas, and there's a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, it is, um, maybe not the ideal place for a Sunday picnic. Now, you can have a picnic here, but you're coming. We, we, we just did. Yeah, we did have a picnic. It was great. And the the site, the place is beautiful. The views up here, even if you would come up and knock it on a cave tour, you're not going to be disappointed by the views and the natural splendor. When you come out here, come in with gas, come in with food, come in with water, bring a paper map because cell phone service is spotty. Um, closed-toed shoes are essential for coming to visit. There's a lot, like I mentioned earlier, everything that grows here has... Thorns. prickers or thorns <laughs> or teeth 
the plants included. So um, come in here prepared. Know what you're getting into. This is a very remote park. It's cowboy country out here. We have free-range cattle roaming near the park. They can be in the park road. A lot of wildlife can be in the park road, so it's important to know. keep your eyes focused right ahead of you. we got tortoises, snakes, uh, birds. I mean, there's no limit to the desert wildlife that can be in the road. So you want to come in prepared. Do some research. Um, give yourself ample time. Yeah, perfect. Perfect, yeah, that's it. Good, so... Andy, I want to thank you. This was fantastic. Um, and I want you to, once again, as you sign off, just tell us your position here at the state park. This is Andy Fitzpatrick. I'm the state park interpreter up here at Providence Mountain State Recreation Area, the home of Mitchell Caverns in the beautiful Mojave Desert. Andy, thank you so much. Thank you. Been a pleasure. My name is Alan Hess. I'm here in the Seaview Track in Palos Verdes, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Here with you, we're at the visitor center at Anza Borrego State Park. I love these birds. Uh, do you want to properly introduce yourself and give us your title here at the park, and then we can jump in? Sure. My name is Luann Thompson, and I am an interpreter for California State Parks. Uh, came here 13 years ago to Anza Borrego Desert State Park, and mostly do uh, outreach to. Uh, elementary and middle school classrooms from the park with the kids in their classroom in our ports program. Perfect. And just uh, ports stands for? Parks Online Resources for Teachers and Students. Perfect. I love these birds. So we're we're just in this, this garden outside the visitor center. Um, where, where, where are we in the general scheme of things? Because Kim and I woke up very early this morning and drove about three hours south. So most people come to this is the main area uh, where you can get information and maps. And the visitor center is uh, right down the Montezuma grade. It is, if you come from the Palm Springs area, you're coming um, in on S2 22 and coming all the way up to the mountains and it comes right up into the visitor center and then Borrego Palm Canyon. Perfect. Okay, good. So that's where we are. Um, what's, uh, let's start with the, with, with the skies. It's, it's, it's the middle of the day, but, but at night, one of the salient aspects of this area is. So this is a night sky community, and that actually took a lot of people working on um, lights in town, getting them all directed down, and clearing our sky of light pollution. So a lot of astronomy groups come here, and of course the park also focuses on night sky programs. So there's moon programs and star programs and special event uh, programs on night skies. Perfect. So what 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 do you... What do you love about this? I mean, I know you love your job. I know you love to be here, but give us give us a couple minutes on on what makes not just this as 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 a state park, but this this ecology in this immediate area. What what do you love about it? This is a pretty special place, and I think most people who come here for the first time really 
notice how quiet it is and how you can pick out the bird songs, how blue the sky is because it's a dry sky and we have spectacular light in the mornings and evenings on these mountains. They turn all kinds of colors. So people come here to relax and rejuvenate. People come here to paint, to do photo photographs. Uh, it's a really special place and very different from the urban environment on the other side of the mountains. Good, good. Yeah, our, our car looks different. We just, we came out of the slot and I was walking to our car and I said, our car looks different. This is the light so good. So, um, the, uh, well, we'll come back to the slot. Uh, ecology, right. Um, bighorn sheep. Go, go. So bighorn sheep are the an animal that a lot of time is spent on. Our um, desert bighorns were almost extinct not that long ago. In the last 15 years, we noticed it. Um, a program was started. We have nine recovery units in this park. Um, they range outside of the park to the north and the south um, from the backside of Palm Springs all the way down to Mexico. And uh, we are counting, we're looking at numbers, we're looking at improving habitat. Their numbers have gone from under 200 to now around 900 in that area. Fantastic. And they're, they're very cute. And they're, they're very curious. Well, this is the time of year where people are lucky enough to get to see them, particularly in Borrego Palm Canyon, because uh, that canyon gets the most people. A lot of people do that trail. The sheep are a little bit more used to people um, being in their habitat. And this time of year is a very special time of year because it is the lambing season yeah. in the park. Yeah. So this this is the biggest park in the state yes so this so, sort of kind of all of the other california state parks could actually fit into anza borrego desert <laughs> state park so yes it is the biggest park in the state wow all right well i think you have do you want to get out your map I, I know that no one can see it but let's um so let's start to deal with scale and scope of this park um we are at the northern end of the visitor center and do you just sort of want to as you look at the map and sort of start here at the visitor center and sort of work your work your way south and east and just sort of give us a sense of the different parts of the park. Okay, I think we first have to start north of okay, here right. because Coyote Canyon is a huge part of this park. So this park and, is and, and Coyote Canyon is where the chuckwallas are. Yes, that's where I've seen the most. I'm always looking for chuckwallas, and I saw a number of them uh, last spring on a really hot day up in the bypass area. So Coyote Canyon is a hundred thousand acre drainage, and it has. Seventy-some thousand acres of wilderness area just in that canyon. So this is a 650,000 acre park and you could explore this for a really long time and there's many places I have not even been to because I kind of have favorites that I like to go back to. <laughs> okay, all right, good. So let's just so let's just start walking through your your favorites. Okay, so I'm um, going south. Coyote Canyon is visited a lot, but you need four-wheel drive for okay. and and then even sometimes you need more technical four-wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> even they're getting stuck out there. So it's highly influenced by um water and flooding. And so 
and a, and a very difficult road that is pretty good right now, but over time gets worse. Um, <clears throat> then as I go south, I decided Blair Valley was probably one of the next favorite places only because there's multiple hikes to do there, and picking out individual hikes was a really hard task sure. <laughs> to do. So Blair Valley, um, the multiple hikes there have some really cool history as well. So um, there was a man who lived with his family there in the 1940s, and he <clears throat> um, lived up on a mountain and was doing sort of an experiment in primitive living, and he raised his children, and it's called Ghost Mountain. I love it. And so everybody loves to go up there. The old home site is there, and uh, it's a place that people like to to see and learn about some of that history. He was a writer for a Western magazine, and a lot of his articles and the whole story can be read in a book that was written by <coughs> Diana Lindsay uh, about... Oh about um, Marshall South and his family. And, and Di well, Diana Lindsay wrote a great guidebook to this park. And, and this is a separate book that she wrote. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. And so, um, you, yes, her, having guidebooks is a really good thing to have it on. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. Okay, yeah. good, good. <laughs> because, you know, I just was putting that in because it's really easy when you don't have a guidebook to not know where you are in this park. So Blair Valley um, has the Ghost Mountain Trail. And then when you come down from that trail, there is the Morteros Trail. And that goes into a Kumeyaay village. Yeah. And there's, it's a, it's. We're, has... we're, we're going to take that later today, the Morteros Trail, on the way to our campground. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good trail. That's a really neat area, and um, some of our archaeology volunteers have interpreted that area, so um, it has a guide. And then when you come back from that one, you just continue up the valley, and you get to the Pictograph Trail. And that trail is a really pretty trail just by the... The, well, both of them, all of them, the definition of the of the molded granite there is really pretty, but you get to a big pictograph panel um, that has many, many... Um, drawings on it. There's also along the edges, you, looking, you'll see lots of grinding holes as well. And past the pictographs, you get to a narrow gorge, and it looks out over the south part of the park with a great view. Oh, fantastic. Um, any uh, anything to the east? Oka uh, out toward well, Okatia Wells is another another state park, and we'll save that for another podcast. Okay. Well, as you continue to go south from Blair Valley, so Blair Valley's, you know, worth a weekend easy or multiple weekends, but you can spend a couple days in that area on those trails. And as you go south, there's another area that is, is a pretty special place, and that's Mountain Palm Springs. And there's two campgrounds down there. And the Mountain Palm Springs is a whole grouping of yeah. palms. Yeah. And it's really some special little hikes. And, of course, the Native Americans were there, too, because there's water. Yeah. And the palms are a pretty special thing in all of uh, the canyons of this park because they're remnants from when this was a savanna grassland. Yeah. And it's the only place they can live. They have to have year-round water. So where you see palms, it represents places where there is year-round water. Perfect, perfect. Um, and just, I'm just going to throw this out there, and, and we'll, we'll see what you say. So on our drive down the, the grade, Kim and I stopped at Culp. Culp. Culp Valley. Culp Valley. So is there, a, do, do you just want to just give us 
30 seconds on Colt Valley because it seemed we we didn't we, we wanted to get we didn't want to be late but it looked like there were some interesting trails up there and it's a nice place to stop driving after two and a half hours <laughs> before you take the final grade exactly and there's a campground up there as well and Culp has uh, both ranching historical um, history and it also has the Native Americans and so it's one of our nine cultural preserves so this park has nine cultural preserves which are places where the Native Americans uh, you know chose to be and they're usually where they chose to be is a place that we like too because there's water <laughs> and um, so there's some habitat and the culture the cultural preserve up there is a pretty large one and it eventually was a ranch perfect okay so let's um you got some books yeah, let's I, let's put you put you just put the map aside so you mentioned um the the, the lindsays i and have a it, really old copy of this so there's a brand new copy of this and if you, we, you have to tell us the title of the, this book and it's called the anza borrego desert region a Guide to the State Park and Adjacent Areas of the Western Colorado Desert by Lowell and Diana Lindsay. I'm going to interrupt you. Everyone buy this book. Okay, just don't, don't like get the Falcon Guide. The Falcon Guide's great, but it's just like, it's child's play. Just, just bite the bullet, buy this book. There's really no biting the bullet. It's very inexpensive. It, this is the book. This is a great book. Don't leave home without it. Okay, continue. So I've had this. Oh, don't hike without a guidebook. Exactly. Okay. And certainly do not go into off-road areas without it because the signage is not always great or not easy to see. And this is perfect. You leave the main highway and it says in 1.5 miles there is a fork. Take the fork to the left. In three quarters mile you will come to this. And then it also has a lot of information about um, native sites and rocks and plants. It has a lot of natural history embedded in it so it isn't just directions and comes with a, a map that will get you all over this park. So this this there's multiple copies of this that's in every one of the vehicles I use and and the map that goes with it. Uh, yeah, the really great. This is a, a a water resistant topo map. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, so wh what about them? So they wrote an they, sh the the wife wrote another book about the the settler. Yes. So her Marshall South book, and I don't have the Marshall South book with me, um, is another one that she researched. And uh, one of the sons who had grown up on the mountain um, did the interviews, and then she used the articles that um, Marshall South and Tanya, his wife was also a writer and a poet and so uh, their writings are embedded in it along with the story of um, what that family did and their experience in living in the desert. I love it and so so do you, do you have a, an anecdote about the Lindsays themselves? It's like they've, they've been around here a minute or two. They have been around here a long <laughs> time and really uh, Diana told me that that she wanted she loves hiking and so the sierras was her place and her husband um was flying for the military and was flying from san diego over in the desert and kept telling her we need to go over and explore that and she was like no no but once she did she was hooked and that's all she wanted to do so she has an amazing history in this park as well perfect um you were going to, we're in this great garden, you were going to just point out 
no one can see it, but just call out some of the more interesting uh, vegetation that we can see just in this stroll in this garden, and then of course out in in the wild too. Well, I guess I guess we are in the wild, but this is this is, this is irrigation here. There's there's yeah there there is irrigation here. Which, you know, is why you can see all the things that live in all the different altitudes of the desert here. And it's a great place to start your trip out into the desert is because many of the plants are identified and they don't all grow in one place when you're out in the natural desert. Um, a lot of your hikes here, a great thing too is you can hike from one zone of plants to another zone of plants. Many of our hikes increase in elevation of canyons. Canyons definitely are a favored um, hike here. And I see an agave over there, and the agaves are just starting to shoot their stalks up. Um, and they're beautiful plants. <clears throat> the Native Americans used them to the the root was something that they um, roasted and so roasting pits are something that you'll see in cultural preserves if you know what you're looking for they're just basically dark spots on the ground and the young men would harvest them before the stock went up um, and the, where the stock goes up if it's cut early also accumulates something uh, a liquid that they would um, Used to make pulque. Uh, uh, yeah, yes. Pul pulque is a, a, I'm not going to say favorite in our household, but it's, um, it's definitely a, a beverage of interest in our household as we live down the street from a, a, a restaurant that has it delivered daily from Tijuana in giant one gallon milk containers. And it's interesting. <laughs> So it's the fermented agave, yeah. <laughs> and um, and the agaves are shooting up stalks right now, and they are really spectacular. And one of the things that, um, like the agaves, are the Orioles, and so soon um, we'll have uh, bullocks and hooded Orioles throughout the desert. And uh, so that's a great favorite season. And uh, Blair Valley is a great area. You are getting higher down there to get into a lot of agave, even right before Blair Valley in the Tamarisk Grove area, and then um, into the yucca and the yucca blooming in Blair Valley. And so this is the time of the year for that. Also, uh, the brittle bush is going right now. The canyons, uh, it's, it's going here in the garden, but in the canyons, it's it's a little early, but the chuparosa is gorgeous in the canyons. The lavender is gorgeous in the canyons. Uh, so, you know, our spring is different this year. We had less than an inch of rain since July compared to our seven inches last year. Uh, but, you know, the desert plants, that's what they're used to. Yeah, and so this is still their spring season, and a lot of them are doing their desert thing. Perfect. And so... Let's uh, bring, bring, wrap this up. Bring us on home. What are what are some? We 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 have told people, get your guidebook, read it. Don't hike without it. Okay, we we we've, we've we're, we're we're done being their mothers. Um, just what what do you want people? Why should people? What's what's one? Give us give us just your best shot. Come on down here and 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 what? I think the thing that I always want people to do is when they come here and especially if they're in a group of people to consciously decide to be in this place at this time 
and like leave behind all of these other things, leave behind all of the conversation about all of the things that fill your life and just be in this place because this is a really cool place to just be in and experience the sound and the lack of sound and the dark night skies and just the beauty of the light on the mountains in the morning, in the evenings in this park. You did it. I love it. Thank, thank, thank you. Uh, to give, us, give us your name and your proper title again here, and anything we should know about when we shouldn't come here. And, 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 and that'll be it. So my name is Luann Thompson, and I am a park interpreter, or educator, for Anza Borrego Desert State Park. And... People come here in the summer, but this is a pretty tough (laughs) place to be in the summer. And if you are going to come, just be really well prepared, especially if you're going to hike and hike early, early, even in the late spring, early, get up early and do those hikes and come prepared with water. This is uh, a park that the services are not close to you in many places in this park. So you need to come prepared uh, when you come out to Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My name is Larry Paul, and I'm here in beautiful Southern California in Rancho Palos Verdes in the Seaview Tract, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. done. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of April 2018. Our guests on this monthly podcast episode were Luann Thompson and Andy Fitzpatrick. They are both interpreters at state parks. Luann Anzabrego, Andy Andy Fitzpatrick, Providence Mountain State Recreation Area. Anzabrego is in the south uh, near San Diego, Providence Mountains is smack dab in the middle of the Mojave National Preserve. So they they did a great job explaining the beauties and splendors of their respective parks, and I hope everyone gets out the door and gets out there this summer, because it's, it's, the California desert is one of the greatest wonders of the world. And, and so with that, we're going to start to wrap this up. I want to thank everyone for listening, and I want, Kim, before we sign off, for you to do a couple things quickly. The first is the feedback loop. We like feedback, and there are many ways you can let us know what's up with you. You can send us an email at youcanateatthesunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esoturic.com. You can join us on one of the Esoturic tours or at a LAVA event like the Forensic Science Seminars. And if you're the kind of person who likes to leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts, you can probably post a review of You Can't Eat the Sunshine, and we appreciate that too because it helps people find like-minded shows. Thanks. Okay, good. Okay, Kim. We are in the home stretch. We're almost done. Mm-hmm. It is time for you to quickly review some upcoming bus tours because we hope that everyone that mm-hmm. likes what we do also gets on the bus because that's, you know, that's our bread and butter. So go ahead and give us, just look ahead. I can't remember the last time I had bread and butter. <sighs> but I do get uh, taken to three, show caves. Three, three weeks ago. It was three weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> If you'll have some more next week. Upcoming tours where we might see you. 
um, in a lonely place, Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles, May the 5th, and um, finally the Nomad Hotel in the old Bank of Italy where Raymond Chandler worked as an oil company executive in the 1920s and got a front row view of just how crooked the, well, the equivalent of billionaires. We didn't have billionaires in 1920s L.A., but boy, they acted like billionaires. And, and he got an eyeful, and then he wrote about it in his detective novels. And so now that the Nomad's open and beautifully restored, we actually go inside, which is kind of exciting for me because I had to imagine what the interiors were like when I wrote about it in my novel, The Kept Girl. So that's May the 5th, and we'll um, also go into Hollywood and talk about Chandler as a screenwriter. And then the following Saturday is um, a very special once-a-year tour called Crawling Down Cahuenga, Tom Waits, Los Angeles. And it is a tour that I co-host with my longtime music writing collaborator, David Smay. He wrote a great little book about the album Swordfish Trombones by Tom Waits, which was sort of a transitional record for him. And so we'll go from downtown into Hollywood, West Hollywood, Echo Park, Filipino Town, and talk about how Tom Waits... uh, Rose up in the music world, signed away his publishing, fell in love, changed his life, and it all happened in some really great time capsule locations. That one's filling up. All the tours have been filling up lately, which is great. Um, The following Saturday, it's the lowdown on downtown. We added an extra spring edition because the April tour sold out so quickly. So May 19th, uh, that one's filling up. But if you want to see the Dutch chocolate shop and get a real sort of insider's view of the many rises and falls and rises again of downtown Los Angeles, redevelopment, failures, and successes, and that Dutch chocolate shop, which people can't get enough of, and the uh, History of the Arts District. Join us, too. Well, I'm going to just interrupt you. So the, fu- the best thing about this tour, the Lowdown Tour, is that a lot of people come to this tour for the Dutch chocolate shop, and at the end of the tour, they're like... Wow, that that this entire tour is totally amazing. Like I was just like they're focusing on. I want to get on the circus of the Dutch chocolate shop. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fun. But they're like, wow, that was like this whole tour is really amazing. I know. Sometimes I get emails and they're like, when exactly is the chocolate shop? And um, is it okay if we leave after that? <laughs> Come on, yeah, you can do that. Tell me if you're leaving because we keep count. Um, that's that's not the, the point. Is that they love the whole. Tour. They love the whole. Tour. Well, yeah. I mean, you stay to the end. You get to meet Terry Ellsworth, and he's your friend in the arts district. But only if you stay on the bus. It's true. And this is probably the last chance to see the Dutch chocolate shop before. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually I made the mistake of saying on social media before construction begins and people flipped out and they thought that meant it was getting demolished. No, dears. It's a historic cultural landmark. It's in wonderful hands. It's getting uh, adaptively restored to be a public space again. But it's going to be a while until we can go in. So if you want to see it, see it with us on May 19th. Then we're heading into a whole slew of crime bus tours. And here's what we've got. Neighborhood-based true crime tours. June 2nd, Weird West Adams. June 16th, Eastside Babylon. June 23rd, and this is the second run of a new tour that I've written, Wilshire Boulevard Death Trip. And as Richard pointed out, I'll see if we get to go into (laughs) Liberty Park or not. Maybe we'll stand on the sidewalk and admire the view. We'll find out about that. That's a great tour because it's the simplest route I've ever written. Yeah, it's just start downtown, go down Wilshire, all the way to the LA County yeah, Museum. We, we we really need our. If our, you're talking into the microphone, talking to the microphone. We really need our regular bus 5504 mm-hmm. for this one because it's um, we, we're going to be very non-linear. We might be because because right. we're, we 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 pass each location twice. So it's it's going to be really helpful if we if we can do this on my computer. We can just pop back and forth. Richard, 
It's going to be fine. I, I promise you. Because I've deliberately mixed up the really grim, psychotic, demented, troubling stuff with the wacky stuff. And that's just the way that it goes. You know? You, yeah. you, you, you take that tour. You may think you know Wilshire Boulevard. We all do. If, if you're an Angelino, Wilshire is in your heart. But I found some stuff out there that really makes it a very different kind of road. So I, and, and some beautiful architecture, of course. So that's June 23rd. June 30th, it's the Pasadena Confidential Crime Bus Tour, a tour about, you know, rocket science, black magic, millionaires with inappropriate pets, and the inability to take a group of people out onto the uh, Colorado Street Bridge because of those really ugly fences that they put up. But we adapt, and we make it work. And um, then on July 14th, it's our flagship true crime tour, the Real Black Dahlia, the tour that asks not who killed Beth Short in 1947, still unsolved mutilation murder of a young drifter without many friends who told many lies. Not who killed her, but who was she? Why should we care? And what does her life and death and the investigation therein reveal to us about Los Angeles in the post-war years? It's um, a tour I love to give because it's not what people expect uh, it's really, it's not about all of these wacky theories about who killed Beth Short. It's really about what it was about Los Angeles that drew these strange figures to it. And we learn so much just from following in their footsteps and remembering. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, everyone at home, for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen. And I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can't make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between 